We have on the panel, just in case you don't know who's who, Phil Mason, who's at DFID, and he's uh, in charge of DFID's sort of anti-corruption work, and he'll explain a bit about that at the, the start. We're delighted that Lawrence Cockcroft has uh, agreed uh, to uh, sit in on this panel. He was obviously one of the, the founders of Transparency International. He uh, headed Transparency International UK. Uh, I would saw him at, sitting on big meetings at the OECD um, uh, and really driving force behind so many things So and very knowledgeable. So thanks very much, Lawrence, for joining. Um, Dominic, you know. And this is Christine Cheng, who's co-authoring the book with Dominic on peace building and corruption efforts. And Liz. So uh, over to Phil, just to... Fill us in a bit on where DFID is uh, on, on this issue, and then we'll kind of perhaps just throw it out to questions and comments from you. Thanks very much, Nate, for the kind of privileged opportunity of doing a sub-session. Um, um, I won't speak for very long, I won't hog the floor, but I just thought it'd be useful for you to get a feel for where DFIDs come from. You'll see from the biog note that... Uh, I have been around in this field for, for longer than just the one year that I've been working on our current team. Um, I started the anti-corruption work under Claire Short uh, back in 2000. And I think coming back, I did it for five years to 2005. Then for various reasons, I went off and um, ran our overseas territories development work, which is not all corruption-free. Uh, as you can imagine, with, with our Caribbean friends. Um, and then I had the opportunity of coming back, and I pitched in for, to come back. It's something in the civil service, they say, never go back to a job that you've left. I'm delighted a year on that I did come back to, to the desk, because it's taught me two things. One, I can say to my colleagues, I, I have five, a small team of uh, four other uh, uh, folk in the centre in, in, in Tower Street in, in, in London, and they often get frustrated, as you say it's the frustration in the room today, about how long it takes to achieve things in, in anti-corruption. And when I was able to come back to them and say, look, ten years ago, there wasn't really much going on. And actually, I come back and, t and ten years on, there's an awful lot has happened in that ten years. So it tells me, A, it takes a long time to achieve things. But secondly, we have to keep reminding ourselves how little there was in this area, say, in around 92,000. Um, and I think that's, that's a salutary issue. If you think about what we've achieved, what the world has achieved in the last 10 years, uh, we now have a UN convention, which I, you know, for my sins, enjoyed sitting through the two and a half years of negotiation. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and it, as somebody said, it's not perfect, but then you know, it's there. It's a consensus, and um, if the opportunity comes up in, in questions, I'll say why I think it's such an important... Um, opportunity to get to laying to rest some ghosts about how corruption stopped us acting in the past. We have a bribery act. I hope it comes in on the first of April. Um, there are, you know, reasons why that's looking difficult at the moment, not least to the Evening Standard. We have two, and this is unique for development agents. We have two um, law enforcement units funded by my team uh, by aid funds. Uh, in the City of London, uh, a, a dozen police officers sitting in the City of London police force who are dedicated to investigating corruption allegations, international corruption allegations, from, by British citizens, British companies. 
uh, and we have a, a unit of a similar size in the Metropolitan Police who is tra her tracing illicit flows uh, of PEPs, politically exposed persons, from developing countries that come through London. And you may have read in the newspapers, uh, I had the privilege, again, a dream 10 years ago, could never imagine this would have happened, but last May I was in the public gallery in, in Southwark Crown Court watching an associate of uh, an ex-Nigerian state governor being prosecuted for money laundering offences in the UK and realising something like £40 million of assets, which eventually we hope will go back to Nigeria. Now, again, we couldn't have imagined that 10 years ago, but that is now a reality. Um, we've got a very joined-up Whitehall. Uh, again, that was very difficult. Claire Short um, wanted us to try and get Whitehall all looking in the same direction, realise the problem for HMG collectively. Um, it's a very, very impressive setup now uh, with the organisation and the cooperation between uh, agencies. And of course, we've got new players on the block. Uh, you may have heard of the World Bank's Stolen Assets Recovery Initiative, STAR. We have uh, Mark Peeth's organisation in Basel, the International Centre for Asset Recovery. These are new players which are helping us to get to that other end of the spectrum, the final prize of actually securing the assets that we've restrained and getting those back to developing countries. So that's a very exciting agenda in 10 years of international progress. That's actually really quite a good programme of achievement. And yet sometimes um, it does look as if this is a sclerotic uh, process. Um, DFID's structure has always been, uh, in anti-corruption, to work in what I call the three domains. One will be familiar to you. It is the classic thing that DFID and aid agencies do. It's working with developing countries in developing countries, working out good public governance, public financial management, making sure parliament works, and all of those sorts of good governance agendas. That uh, is still continuing. We have DFID officers spread around 20, 25, 30 countries in the world who are working with partner countries, doing that classic work. And we sit in London trying to support them with the knowledge, the international knowledge that's around about how corruption um, is being addressed and can, can, can be a resource for them. The, the two other areas are, are much more uh, different from a traditional development agency. One, as I said, is unique. We have always worked on what Claire Short used to call the supply side of corruption. It was very important to her that it, the equation of corruption, the briber and the bribee, the giver and the taker, was addressed. And she was very kind of concerned that little action was being taken at home on bribery legislation, on the attitudes that the business was taking towards all of this. It was the still, 10 years ago, the when in Rome, do as Romans do type of mentality. Um, and of course, the kind of use of the British financial system as conduits for what she called the getaway car for, for ground corruption. Um, these were issues which she said nobody was touching, and that was the agenda we started back in 2000. Um, it's materialised now into these institutional responses, like our two units, for example. But that still features in DFID's approach, and we work very closely with all our Whitehall colleagues um, to try and ensure that UK is dealing with the issues that UK has a responsibility to. And there will be a test come um, you know, the middle of this year when... UK is up for, for its compliance review with the UN Convention. So we're, we're quite, quite pleased that we're in that second round of, of reviews. Um, 
The third dimension of our work is, if you like, bringing those two first domains together, the, the, the UK domestic side and the, the, the developing country side. The third bit to make all this work is the international collaboration between them. And this is where the asset recovery dimensions, the mutual legal assistance, the kind of work that makes sure that when cases arise in a developing country, the UK can be as cooperative as possible in making sure that if it touches the UK, we can be as responsive as possible. And the kind of work to make sure that asset recovery processes can, can, can work is the other aspect of that. That's where we work with STAR and, um, and, uh, and ICAR, for example. Um, the kind of current themes that are preoccupying uh, me and my team at the moment, uh, you know, <coughs> making sure that the UN Convention is not just a piece of legislation that sits on the desk, but actually that is used operationally by us as donors to work with partner countries. I regard UNCAC as a fantastic menu of activities. It's comprehensive for anti-corruption work. Making sure that's an operational framework for all of us to collaborate around is quite vital. And of course, making sure the UK can be uh, seen as compliant with it. Obviously, the Bribery Act, we're working very closely with colleagues in, um, in, in, in other departments about making sure that business doesn't feel, as, as Elizabeth said, that the only option is to withdraw that we need to make sure that there are ways in which companies can work cleanly in these <coughs> environments. Um, the big issue, of course, is the Chinas, the Indias, the Russias, who aren't inside some of the current tough frameworks, the sort of OECD frameworks. The G20, the working group on corruption, has been set up that embraces these sorts of countries. And there's a huge potential here to in pull the Chinas and the Indias into the kind of ambit of an OECD um, uh, provision. So that's very important for us and um, we are currently with the Ministry of Justice the kind of Whitehall leads in making sure that that working party delivers. Um, tax transparency is obviously a big issue coming up um, a, a lot more pressure on tax transparency as well as the tax haven and tax avoidance types of areas. Um, in Whitehall there's a lot more work being done about better managing and structuring the intelligence um, resources that are available to Whitehall to ensure that cases and evidence and leads can be exploited. Um, we think there's a, there's a big suppressed um, capacity here. There's lots of information around, but often it doesn't find the right place in the right system. Um, and I think, uh, as I said, getting uh, with the Secretary of State's concern, and they, they are deeply concerned are deeply aware of the obligation that comes with having a protective budget. We are not the most liked department in Whitehall at the moment. Um, I still have to say we still have to find 30% administrative cuts in terms of our people and our travel budgets and all the rest of it. But our programme budget, though, as you've seen on all the tables, is probably the only department that's actually increasing. Our ministers are clearly concerned of the public optics of that. That increases the premium on them demonstrating that aid that we do spend is spent wisely. So we expect internally within the DFID's internal control mechanisms that there's going to be a big push for making sure that we can demonstrate that the aid that is spent um, <coughs> is, is properly uh, accounted for. And you know, the Secretary of State talks uh, very openly about the zero tolerance uh, approach. So. We're in touch with all the kind of live issues that I suspect have, have, uh, are with in people's minds and are raised, raised here today. Um, but I will probably stop there. There's lots of more things I'd like to say, but I think we'll do them in response to the questions.
Thanks very much, Phil. Well, I'm, I'll have a, a few comments and questions from uh, the participants, um, and, uh, but I will come back to Lawrence and Christine, who haven't given presentations, to get them also to have a few moments. So, start with you. Then. We have a question for Liz, actually. Um, I think it's a very good presentation, well, I thank you very much for that. Just wondering from the effects of the uh, UK law, anti white law coming from April the 10th this year, what impact will that have on English companies or British companies overseas in relation to your four areas of changes that they actually company take, take, take on board when they do face anti corruption, anti white legislation? I'll take a few and then. We'll allocate them. Yes, at the back. Hi, I'm Claire Norris. I'm from BP, um, from the Ethics and Science Department. A question for Liz, really. Um, what role do you think political leadership plays in sort of policing violent and corruption, particularly the corporate response? Because, you know, compliance will only come with ethical behaviour, and if the tone at the top is right. And so I just wondered what Liz and the panel thought good ethical leadership looked like, and whether that would be a really Okay, I'll take, take one more, yep. Yeah. Uh, this is for Liz as well. Um, you said that compliance didn't have much kudos in some of the companies, and I, I'm just wondering why, and if you could expand on that slightly, and would turning that around be part of uh, your success, you know, your four points of success? Okay, so Liz, you had the largest number of questions. Did you want to go first? <coughs> Would you, you want to think? No, no. 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 I'll just answer without thinking. <laughs> so what impact will the Bribery Act have on UK companies? Um, I don't think you'll get too much withdrawal until people see what the enforcement 
um, often is like. Um, I think there's a lot of panic about it at the moment. Um, there's a lot of presentations from law companies explaining to people um, the impact. Um, and so I think companies are beginning to think particularly about the sort of compliance strategy. I don't think there are that many companies thinking about the sort of real change option. And if you look at, it just seems that this is not really out there. Um, so if you look at surveys of companies asking them about corruption and how they're responding and compliance, all of the questions that they're asked even are in terms of compliance. They're about sort of implementing codes of conduct and training and these things. But there isn't really anything about should you be changing your business model. It's not even asked. Um, so we don't know much about what companies think about it, but there isn't really much evidence that they're doing it. Um, ethical leadership, um, yeah, I think it's, the tone at the top I think is absolutely critical. Um, I think that one of the big problems with this is that it's very difficult to control all of the parts of the company that might be exposed to corruption risk. It's particularly difficult to control the people on the ground who are really <coughs> facing the pressure, who might, whose business or job might depend on them getting the contract through or um, the delivery through. Um, and I think if at least there's a very clear message from the top that this would not be tolerated, um, I think that's a really important first step. And I also think that um, you know, with the individual liability um, in the Bribery Act, that will become more important and that people, at the, you know, the board members and the senior managers really need to be thinking about this. Um, but it, it's, it can also be a difficult job for them, I think, to control those people on the ground. Um, and then on the compliance and kudos and how to turn it around, I absolutely that compliance can be part of the change strategy. So I've... I've falsely separated them in a way. Um, compliance can be good and thorough and can involve um, really changing the behaviour um, of the company. I think at the moment it's just, it's often the, play, the part of the company that people have retired to or there is, just isn't much sort of investment I'd in like it. As it is. So a lot of people do see compliance departments as business prevention. You're stopping us from making money. You're telling us that you know I can't do this this uh, this deal. I can't enter into a sale because there's a potential for bribery or there may be a facilitation payment. You're telling me to stop making money. That's quite a difficult thing to get people's heads around. To think you've got to act ethically. You've got to do business in the right way. And compliance has actually been. I mean, one of the reasons I got into compliance is because it is a growth area now. Um, there are companies that are obviously smaller compliance departments. If you've seen those, you've got all the compliance departments. They had issues um, So, yeah, I think it does have a perception of compliance, but I think compliance officers need to work with the businesses, with the lawyers, with the consultants, with people in this room to really change that perception because brand corruption is scary, it's out there, and you will get caught. That's an advert shooting against class, I don't think it is. <laughs> Thanks, I think that's really useful. And I, you know, the, yeah, I can see that there's always this tension that you want to scare them enough to get them interested, but then show that you can um, actually overcome.
Hmm. Well, maybe we'll invite a few of these isolated figures <laughs> to, to a dinner or something. Um, uh, I think, Phil, you had... Uh, I had a couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Barbara's question about private uh, corruption is an interesting one, because I think, I mean, certainly DFID is a donor agency. Its nexus and connection into activity at a place like India will be via public service, rather than dealing with... The private side. It's what makes me feel that bringing international standards to bear on this is important and the UN Convention for example has provisions about the need for very clear conflict of interest uh, provisions in in systems. Uh, We know that most countries or many countries don't have a very clear concept, certainly they don't have clear provisions on conflict of interest sometimes they don't even have a clear concept of conflict of interest. I remember one Balkan country um, whose Minister of Trade was also the biggest toy manufacturer. And he could not see the difference between going on a public mission as a trade minister and negotiating on behalf of his company. Um, I think these are continuing uh, issues. Um, the, uh, the, the concept of um, you know, political corruption, the influencing... I mean, I was in Afghanistan in November, and you know, it's quite clear there that... The, there are, there's perversions in the public service through the influence of private brokers outside that, that system. Um, so I think it, you're, you're right to, to point it up. I don't think there are any magical solutions. I think the key is about changing the overall culture. It's not about passing necessarily just passing another law to deal with that particular aspect. It's actually about changing, as, as, uh, as people said earlier, about Lord Faulkner saying earlier, changing the culture and the mindset such that there is a much stronger division in one's mind between public service and public obligations and separating those from, 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 from the private side. Um, Robert's question about cash on delivery, I mean, I'll give you the sanitised version um, from the one we had the conversation <laughs> over coffee. Um, it's a, it's obviously an, I, I don't know much about it myself. It's not part of the, the particular domain that I have, although we'd, we'd expect to be part of the kind of validation process that an agency like mine would go through to check some of the issues that, 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 that you raise. On the one hand, you're right to draw the balance. On the right hand, it looks quite attractive because it actually only pays aid when what you want it to be done has been done. It does raise, for me, one basic conceptual question of how does the country do it in the first place if it doesn't have the aid. Um, but probably clever minds, it comes out of the think tanks, so clever minds have already thought through that. Um, but the verification will be crucial. I mean, how, we'd have to make sure that the verification of the achievement is a meaningful verification. It's not just a register of numbers of things that claim to be achieved, whether donors can go around and check that every single hospital has been built and these sorts of issues. One could find that the verification is actually quite an, an onerous position. So no doubt the pilot will be looking at these sorts of issues, but it's another indication of, in a sense, trying to bypass the problems that we've currently seen. Now, again, whether if that improves government's delivery, that's all to the good. But if it actually just serves to complicate life, then that will be a negative part, but that's, that's why we have pilots. Uh, Dominic, I'll bring in some more questions in a minute. I'm gonna, Dominic wanted to add something. After Dominic's spoken, I'm going to sort of ask Lawrence and Christine just to make a few remarks, and then we'll take the next wave of comments and questions. This whole cash on delivery idea seems to rely on a particular assumption that is that the reason for lack of progress 
is lack of criticality rather than lack of capacity. And so I think it, only, it could only ever be successful for a certain, probably quite small number of countries which would have the technical capacity but which have so far failed to, for political reasons or for, uh, for, for private reasons of certain individuals who find it more beneficial not to pursue uh, these kind of reforms and therefore hasn't, uh, hasn't progressed on this path. And uh, I guess in the kind of European context, Bulgaria and Romania would come to mind. <laughs> I think we probably have the capacity to address many of the issues, but because the incentive has been removed, the financial incentive, because they have become members of the European Union, suddenly very much slacked in their efforts to address many of these governance problems. Mm -hmm. So, Lawrence, would you just talk? Whatever you want to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not for too long. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll devote my uh, four, four minutes to a rather different issue by way of diversifying the agenda, and perhaps this is going to be more appropriate for the second annual Oxford Anti-Corruption Conference. <laughs> so, you, if you don't like this subject, you, you can regard it as a possible trailer. Um, I just want to draw attention to the question of what happens to funds once they've been corruptly earned and are then parked somewhere overseas. Now, I'm thinking now beyond the issue of asset repatriation that we've talked about, but uh, there's no question that the uh, majority of assets are not being repatriated, so don't let's have too many illusions about that. So what we have are very large pools of capital circulating in different markets in the world, some of them in the so-called traditional offshore centers, but some of them in the shadow banking system, which is very ill-quantified and certainly hardly at all regulated. So whether you're talking about a relatively small developing country like Kenya, or you're talking about a very big one uh, like Mexico, then you can be certain that as a result both of bribery and also of um, uh, illicit trade in areas like human smuggling uh, and obviously drug trafficking, that there are huge sums of money in the international system which are not accounted for. Now, I think the direct relevance of this to the conversation we're having today about corruption, which is really at a national level, is that those funds are regularly manipulated by people who either control them or own them or have access to them for political purposes within the countries from which those funds originate. So, for example, if you are um, in the business of uh, arbitraging uh, Russian energy exports, then you have access to uh, pots of money in different parts of the world that can feed back into the political system in Russia. Or likewise, in a smaller way, if you're in Tanzania and you have the proceeds of deals like the um, uh, external payments um, arrangement that netted $300 million for various members of a local elite, then you can be certain that those funds can be fed back into the system, both to fund political uh, activities, but also more broadly to fund what I would call political finance rather than party finance, either to buy people off or to achieve certain objectives. So the ways in which these funds are being used and held and manipulated, I think, is very important. And I'd just like to draw attention to the fact that if you think this is a comment about maybe what one used to call the third world and or now emerging markets, I'd just like to draw attention to the case in France 18 months ago when Mr. de Villepin accused President Sarkozy of sabotaging his campaign through funds held in a company called Clearstream in Luxembourg. Those funds originated in the sale of frigates to Taiwan by Elf. And it's the same case that Eva Jolie brought against Roland Dumas. So let us be very clear that this business of funds circulating in certain offshore centers used for political purposes is an international phenomenon. 
and I'm quite certain that it's now one of the main means by which corruption can be driven. So it's a rather different area, but I just want to put it on the table as an important one. Well, I've taken note. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fascinating, uh, worrying. Um, Christine, what can you worry us with? Um, an additional set of worries. I'm going to speak partly to what Don has already said about uh, looking at uh, the role of the international community and the influx of aid. And I want to speak, speak specifically about what the international community, well, what our role is and, and what some of these um, worrying factors are. Uh, and mostly because it's something that we in this room can actually do something about as opposed to in post-conflict governments, you know, they run their own affairs. But on our end, I think the first factor is that there's, there's so much money there because, and, and it's a problem because countries actually pledge or decide how much they want to pledge immediately after um, the war has ended. And at that time, as Paul Collier has already pointed out in, in other work with Anka Hoffler, that these companies actually don't, or these countries don't actually have the capacity to absorb that aid at that time. So a lot of it is just, is just wasted, and a lot of it ends up in, in hands that should never have it in the first place. The second thing that I think um, should be pointed out is on the donor side, I mean, maybe Keith can speak to this as well, it's just if donors, if they don't actually give out the money, then in terms of budget processes, that money is not allocated to them next year because it feels like um, within those departments that there's no use for it. So, and of course, fiefdoms within um, aid agencies would like to see their budgets grow and not shrink. So there is every incentive there to, to push the money out the door and at, at all costs. And I think that's, a, that's something that we can change internally about how our bureaucracies operate. Another thing is that donors do not do a good job of monitoring their money. They just, monitoring and evaluation is horrible. I know people who give out the grants, uh, and I know, you know the people who spend the grants, and I know there's not a lot of connection between them often. The money goes out, and, and nobody follows up on what happens to that money. Never mind actually whether or not the money um, is actually spent on achieving the outcomes that they're meant to achieve. We don't do very, we do an even worse job of not just making sure that the money is spent in an ethical way and for what it was intended to, but that we're even worse at making sure that it does what it was meant to do in the first place. And then on top of this, um, we don't, well, nobody's prosecuted for corruption. So it, on the, on the other side, um, we don't really, well, we can't go after them, but the, the governments themselves, the post-conflict governments do not, well, there's a high, there's a, it's a low risk but high reward proposition for them. And we don't really do anything on our end in terms of giving out the money to police that. We don't, we don't even slap their wrists. So I think on our end, again, we can do something about that. Next thing I want to say is that there's a lot of, in, the, in some of these cases, especially in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, it's a cash environment. So people do, and it's been documented, walk around with bags of cash and give them out. And that makes for very poor accounting standards, to say the least. Uh, you know, things like that, it's not just about the amount of money that's, that's going out, it's about how we hand it out and whether or not anybody's keeping records. Um, another thing to think about is, is this environment. Purchasing power parity matters a lot. So if you're the person that is in charge of giving out the money, I mean, you know, 
on the on the high end, let's just say um, one a political officer might be making a hundred thousand dollars a year or, or seventy five thousand pounds a year, but the person that maybe the the person on the other side that they're distributing the aid through might be making a thousand pounds a year, and all of a sudden they've got access to this aid worth a million pounds. I mean that is an enormous amount of money for them in in local terms, and to translate that. For us, it would be the equivalent of having you know, access to hundreds of millions of pounds. You, you have to think of it on that scale. And I think sometimes we lose sight of, of, of the scale and how much money, um, how much money <coughs> is going through these systems and, and how easy it is to cap. It's your one chance to capitalize. And this is why a lot of people get involved in, um, in this in the first place on the other end. And if we don't do anything just to bear that circumstance in mind, then I think it's, it's also, we have some accountability on this. And then the last thing that I want to say is, is one of how um, donors behave when there's a conflict of interest. So the example that I'm going to give uh, is, is from what I've seen in Liberia, where you have the, when Dom was referring to the implementation of GMAP, which was a series of anti-corruption type of reforms that were instituted in the government. Um, one of the people that actually pushed for this was, was a political officer who also happened to be a trade officer. And they had a dual role. So on the one hand, they were pushing for all of these anti-corruption reforms and um, speaking quite strongly against what the government was doing. And on the other hand, they were also um, pushing forward and lobbying for U.S. corporations and what Firestone and what Mittal and a, a lot of other major US companies were trying to get through. And there was a serious conflict of interest. And arguably, I think if you ask the Liberians in this case, there was corruption going on. They, they, they called it corruption. It's not what we would understand necessarily strictly as corruption. But certainly there were, there were serious conflicts of interest. And it sends a very mixed message to post-conflict governments in having to deal with these issues. So I'm just trying to give a sense of, of why what that environment is like and, and why it's so problematic and, and what we could do to change some of the things on, on our end. Oh, very interesting and very much tallies with uh, our concerns, uh, our research concerns on, on the Democratic Republic of Congo where we've gone from not, not being a traditional recipient country to suddenly being one of the major sort of recipients and uh, and yet the systems that used to be in place for evaluating aid, you know, because it was project-focused, have, have gone, and it's now uh, very uninformative, I should think, for everybody, um, especially for researchers. <laughs> um, uh, so, any thoughts? Yes. Can I raise another issue? Yes. I, I'd like to ask the panel about the difference between uh, bribery as a criminal offence and bribery and corruption, and as a civil wrong. I think of O.J. Simpson, he was acquitted of murder, but found liable in a civil court for unlawful killing and had to pay damages. And I'm thinking there's an obvious analogy with any kind of civil recovery actions. Um, in the development sense, we've had two recent cases in the UK, one in the UK courts, one in Jersey. The most recent one in Jersey in November was a judgment for $100 million against the Democratic Republic of Congo, brought by a vulture fund based in one of the locations that Phil's been talking about. And then not long before, we had a case in the High Court in London 
where the government of Zambia had to pay £17 million pounds, um, to a vulture fund from the Cayman Islands. And what's really interesting about these cases is that the judges uh, had to accept that there was a liability on the part of a developing country that's entitled to sovereign immunity. And the sovereign immunity, particularly in the Zambia case, had been waived by an official who then disappeared. Um, and, and what the judge said is that he couldn't make a finding of corruption against the official because the standard of proof required for a finding of corruption is the criminal test. And but for the possibility of making that finding of corruption, the whole judgment against Zambia would have fallen through because it was patently you know, a judgment that shouldn't have, a, a, a debt that shouldn't have been incurred. And so the problem that we've got is we've got a court system which is applying a criminal test, and yet we've got perfectly good civil remedies. And I just wondered whether the panel had any views in view of all that we've been hearing about prosecutions and the difficulties of bringing them about using the civil law, but also looking at some of the abuses that are happening in our own courts, both British courts and courts within the British system. I think that's fascinating, but I, I realise with dismay that some of our our, our legal eagle people have, have perhaps dispersed. But if, mm. if anybody wants to have a go on the panel, or from the floor indeed, um, do. Otherwise we'll park it and <laughs> that will be the third conference. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going to answer that very challenging question. But I, I would just say, leaving aside the vulture fund issue, which I think is... You know, is a particular issue where, where the civil and the criminal um, things collide. I think that just thinking generally about how you pursue anti-corruption through these two routes, I think there is a growing awareness now, particularly in the UK system, but probably more around the world, that the non-conviction-based approach is equally as valid and could be, if you start your strategy off right at the beginning, <coughs> it can be more fruitful than necessarily going down a criminalisation route. And I think the benefit is that people are now thinking about alternatives rather than perhaps thinking that, um, in the, as in the past, that, um, that the civil route was something alien uh, and it was only private citizens who did civil activity. It obviously helps in certain circumstances that the test is different in, in both. And I think that's where prosecutors and thinkers, uh, we know that the CPS and SFO and others think very carefully about these things uh, as, uh, as we go through. So I, I think we can use it to an advantage in pursuing cases, depending on the circumstances. But I'll leave the vultures to somebody else. Any other comments? George? This is going to be unrelated. <laughs> Um, forgive me, I've spoken quite a lot of like sound my voice clearly. Um, I just think I think a lot of the focus of the discussions that we've had so far have very much been focused um, on bribery and also on donors and how donor aid can either positively or negatively affect um, governments and corruptions and conditions. I think we all agree that um, there's an onus on us to, to tackle supply sides of bribery and, and we welcome the bribery act. Uh, I just think that, that, that perhaps we haven't paid quite as much attention to some of the other areas. Uh, in fact, Lawrence raised the issue of, of money laundering and illicit financial flows and, and the issue of the ability for currency to flow out of, um, often out of the developing world, money that's been embezzled, not necessarily bribe money, um, that does find its way into financial centres like London. Uh, and there are huge sums of money that are undoubtedly in bank accounts in all around the world um, that have been essentially stolen 
and from pensions, particularly relating to natural resources. So I think that's an area perhaps that, that it'd be interesting to see what, what, what the panel thinks in terms of that. And I think the other one is, is to realise you know, that the, the real scale, you know, aid and bribes are a very, very small sum of money when you compare it to the volumes of money that are paid for oil, gas, mining, um, and other things. And actually that is the money that tends to be embezzled, and that's the money that tends to disappear and, and contributes to these poor governance environments as well as bribery and, and donors. Um, and I wonder if anyone would have anything to say about um, increasing uh, transparency, tackling um, secrecy jurisdictions, and basically improving the, the international environment in which this business is done, which we're all part. I think it's incumbent on, on the West and, and indeed other countries with financial centres and those who are purchasing raw materials to look at how their involvement contributes to corruption around the world and, and poor governance and how they can improve their standards, like disclosing payments, um, to make sure that they, that they tackle some of those underlying problems. Thanks very much, George. Um, there was somebody else. Oh, yeah. uh, Mark, that would be a question for Liz or for any of the rest mm. of the panel. Um, thinking of the 21st century as being China's century, and thinking of the UK's economic dependence on trade with China, uh, can anybody imagine a situation where a Chinese national would be prosecuted in a UK court? Well, yes, and what I'm going to say is that we've come to the end of questions, unfortunately. Uh, I'm going to let everybody have a you know, final kind of quick word, and then we'll close. So... Um, so Liz and Lawrence can have a go at respond to some of these questions, but everybody could then just have a brief closing remark. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'd just like to respond to the point about China, actually, because although it's obviously it's a bit dubious, or one might question whether or not there is a possibility of having a <coughs> Chinese citizen prosecuted in a UK court, although I don't see why that would be so impossible, actually. But I think one has to situate this question much more in the context of China itself, where the evidence about uh, um, jurisdiction and corruption is actually quite mixed at the moment, because there are stellar cases of very senior people. A classic example, as I'm sure you know, is the party secretary for Shanghai, who two years ago was uh, stripped of all office and is now in disgrace and the head of the pharmaceutical agency who was involved in licensing 150,000 different pharmaceutical companies and was executed. Uh, and so there are messages being sent out periodically. And of course, the Communist Party in China does have an anti-corruption department, which reaches very deeply into the provinces within China and looks very carefully at what is going on. And although it may be, as it were, used to enforce party discipline, and maybe that's a way of looking at it, the fact of the matter is that this matter is not so clear and I, I don't want to overstate my minute and my seconds, but if you look at the TI Global Corruption Report for three years ago, you will see a full record of a very interesting speech by Wen Jiabao to Chinese exporters to Africa, in which he says, gentlemen, you really have to conform to high principles, because otherwise this will undermine the reputation of China. So I just want to register the point that I think the issue is rather in the balance at the moment. Well, I, perhaps to echo that, that China has been pursuing some bribery cases, the case against Rio Tinto, um, for example, and we sort of jury's out still on whether they're pursuing them for political reasons or um, out of some real moral um, purpose, but um, yeah, it's not clear-cut. Mm -hmm. 
Ian, I, for, I forgot you. Is that I'm all right? just going to respond on the criminal civil side, but I think we'll pass that. Yeah, okay, thanks very much. So, final word from Dominic. I don't think I have anything more to say. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, I, 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 I think, yeah. Christine, <laughs> now. Well, uh, I just invite then Dr. Angus Hawkins to, to just close uh, the first inaugural conference. Mm-hmm.